This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... What is this? Plot hooks. Arminius Vanbury. Vampire Hunter. Protagonist types. And Russia on the Moon. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut, where... Robin, I guess the question, not just what do I see or what are you doing, but the more fundamental philosophical question that the Gaming Hut transcends and encompasses is, what is this? What is this? What is this? I don't know. What is this? And you, Robin, have uncovered a mine of what is these, I guess. And so you, you know, pull the cap off your mind. Tell us about it. Right. So as you recall from episode 499, we did the story of the strange markings in the Sahara Desert. And that's were originally brought to attention in the Reddit slash what is this uh, forum or subreddit, I guess, as the kids call it. And this is a place where people find things that they don't know what they are, and then drop them in and ask the assembled wisdom. So either, you know, if you frequent what is this, chances are you're someone who uh, has found something that you don't know what it is, or you're someone who enjoys identifying things uh, and telling them what it is. So therefore, once you take a look at it for uh, about a millisecond, you go, hmm, this is a rich trove of potential mystery, particularly mystery horror plot hooks. You can imagine that the Ordo Veritatis or Delta Green or just your friendly neighborhood ordinary yellow sign investigators from This Is Normal Now uh, perhaps frequent this looking 
for uh, signs of uh, weirdness that they need to go and uh, look into because nearly every post... Now, many of the things that people identify turn out to be completely ordinary. And I believe what you mean to say is are veiled out as. Are veiled out as. But for our purposes, of course, you you pick the ones that are that are not ordinary. So you imagine the, the unordinary thing. And so, for example, a common sub-element of what is this is what is this bug? And you will see them people, you know, providing uh, photographs of bugs. You do sometimes see people doing that on, on Twitter as well. But if you want to find a bug identifier, you could go to you know, the forensic entomology Reddit, which must surely exist. Or you could go to what is this? And so the the one that I saw when I checked out the various uh, options was a big fat bed bug. And the question was, what is this? I hope it's not a bed bug. Mm. And the answer was, that's a bed bug. That's a bed bug. <laughs> Take measures. So, Ken, it is surely child's play. If we had a toddler on this podcast, <laughs> uh, they could tell us how to turn that into the beginnings of an instigating right. incident in a horror mystery, but we'll have to we'll have to have you do it instead. Put it in your mouth. That's what they'd say. I mean, you've got a mysterious bug. Obviously, the mysterious bug is a vector for whatever the badness is in your campaign. So, if it is a Delta Green, then the bug is obviously it's a Shan spawn, or it's one of the magical biting flies from Lake Malolo in Uganda or that, that transfers your personality when you are, are bitten by it, or maybe it's lice from the head of some filthy uh, dark forest young out there. I mean, it, it's whatever you're, whatever, it, it could be a kind of a an Egyptian scarab, but why is it here in Canada where it should die from the hideous cold? What's going on? And, uh, you know, you have any number of, you know, it, it's just a vector for your bad stuff. So if it's a uh, Ezoterror game, the bug is obviously, you know, you look at it, and you're like, this bug's a chimera. It's been built. There's no bug this hideous and god-awful. Who it would build Jared such Lido's a bug? face on it. Right. That's, that's alarming. Why would it be genetically engineered to have those markings? And then, of course, if it's, you know, your Yellow King bug, it's it's a Carcosan bug. It's um, uh, It looks like the yellow sign. It's like, oh, that's what the yellow sign's a drawing of, is this bug. That's not a good sign, we don't think, that the thing the yellow sign is only a sign of is out crawling around in someone's, you know, a uh, split level in Albuquerque. That's terrible. Right. And then, you know, on you go. Right. And, and the great thing about a horrible bug <laughs> as your instigating incident is that if you have a storyline where you want the uh, player characters on the scene, but you don't want to reveal right away what is going on and that there's just, there's weirdness, right? It's that this is just a way of saying there's an omen, go mm -hmm. toward the omen. And yep. this omen, you know, just happens to be, you know, a crawling maggot with uh, six mandibles and, uh, and you go there and you show up at the house where the people have the bug and they say, Oh, do you still have the bug? And uh, you can either just go, Oh no, it flew out the window. And then, you know, it's just a monster hunt. You're going to find where it is nested and mm -hmm. has grown. Cause of course, evil demon bugs, they grow, they get really yep. big. Really they go fast, into so people and control them or they, they uh, spawn in them. That's not good. Yeah. Or it could just be a straight up sign that, the membrane is thinned or that someone is performing a mythos experiment. And this is the effluvia of that. Right. And so you just sort of have an initial sort of sandboxy bit where, oh, well, something's bad in, in this neighborhood in Akron. Let's go and, yep. you know, get out our instruments and poke around and see what it is. So, yeah, everyone's got those bugs all over town. And you're like, oh, man, that's not good. <laughs> right. And so the bug could either be the main attraction or it can be, you know, an all-purpose 
attract you to the site where you have to dig in and find out what the, the weird thing really is. So it's sort of like the universal remote of mm-hmm. starting a, a supernatural adventure. Another common thread is, what is this key? <laughs> and the quotidian answer is quite often, oh, that's probably a key to your mailbox or your electrical meter or, or whatever it is. But I can, is there any more basic plot hook, a yeah. plot key? Then you find a key. Then you yeah. have a weird key. Right. I mean, the, the standard plot hook, of course, is it's the key to a locker at the bus station or some other anonymous place where that's where the black bird has been stashed or the MacGuffin, you know, whatever it is, the glowing uh, suitcase, you know, whatever you got. That's what the key is to the locker that stashed it, or very seldom it might be to a post office box or even more seldom a safe deposit box. So the most safe deposit boxes need more than just a key. They need, you know, signatures and whatnot. One thing that I found out about keys is that many keys, and I don't know if this is still a truth or if it is a truth that is a new truth, but I feel free people should, you know, pretend it's true, is that when you make a key, you carve in like the key maker's number code. And so if you've gone to, you know, the uh, Home Depot and had them copy a key, they'll put their number code in the side of the key. So even if you don't know what the key is, you'll know where it was made. And if that takes you to the Home Depot that's been, you know, closed after those mysterious killings, then it's like, oh, that's not good. Or the key also can be made of some kind of, it, it, the key can be intrinsically interesting itself as an antique. It could be like, well, this key is of a sort made in the 18th century. They don't make keys like that because locks got smaller or um, that key is, is radioactive. That key is magnetic. That key does another thing besides open a lock. And that's, you know, the, the provenance of the key is the question almost as much or even, even more than what does it open? And of course right. it might just be like, Randolph Carter's silver key. It opens the way to the dreamlands and you just have to ritually know about it. And once you start looking into the key, that's when the guy who lost it, the powerful dream magician is like, that's where my key went. And he starts sending guns after you. Right. So you can have the adventure uh, on this side of reality where you're trying to, I guess in that case, you would have to contrive a reason other than be annoyed that the dream guy is trying to shoot you, which is a pretty good reason to not turn over the key. Mm -hmm. Obviously in the case of, gumshoe characters in mystery stories they have drives where they you know instinctively know not to give the key back to the you know the weird guy who looks like angus Grimm. but there's also as you point out the you know the key to the other world the beginning to a wayne scott mystery so this could even be something that's not in the horror realm per se but this could be your key into uh, D&D land or mm-hmm. uh, opens up an old wardrobe in the attic. Exactly. Tween Narnia or what, what, what have you. So that can lead you. It's uh, different almost. from tween Narnia, which is where exactly. everyone, you know, encounters puberty and other monsters. Yes. A key could be a time machine. Yep. You know, sort of a universal key that in when it's near a lock, it reshifts itself mm-hmm. to the form of that lock, but it has to be a special lock of a door that was in proximity to events of high historical value. And so, you know, you go to the White House and you find, you know, the key is sort of tugging you toward this door and you put it in the key and open it. And then the other side, there's President Garfield and Mm -hmm. you uh, can use that as a sort (laughs) of a... Literally of all the presidents, the key is like, no, talk to James Garfield. It's fine. Come on, key. (laughs) Well, it's it's a historical footnote. It, it, 
this key is not into the typical cliches, right? right? This key, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Did you want, you wanted the Thomas, everyone wants the Thomas Jefferson key. Well, too bad. Yeah. That's right. There's 45 keys, each key to a, oh my God, that's the worst rod of seven parts <laughs> in all of history. Now is Grover Cleveland, does he have two keys? No, the key's broken in half. What's wrong with you? Exactly. <laughs> then we come to one I particularly liked, which is, what is this weird installation in the dog park? And it looked like somebody's homemade art installation, but mm -hmm. a homemade art installation, if you are of a mind to stamp out esoteric threats, you could look at like, oh, oh, that's, that's a gate. That's a membrane thinner. <laughs> uh, that's a gate. You got a gate there. You're going to need to take care of that. Yeah. Uh, looks pretty well. It could be Oxithophy. Can't tell from the yep. JPEG. Uh, do you have a PNG? I can tell. And so. That could be the cause of an emergency scramble mm -hmm. to head to the place. And of course, if a gate in a dog park is your instigating incident, uh, well, guess what? When you get there, there's the telltale chard of the uh, ritual ground having been used and the gate has been uh, taken down. And you just know you don't even have to smell the air to, to smell the fetor of uh, some sort of extra dimensional uh, cosmically indifferent entity, which you uh, then have to go and uh, look for their telltale signs of whatever it is that that entity likes to get up to. Now, alternately, it could be a sensor or a reflector or a barrier uh, element set up by whatever the more powerful agency is. It could be set up by Delta Green or by uh, the Illuminati or by the federal government's magic team or whatever. And it basically, it was put down to guide in a UFO or to reflect uh, demon energy so that it can be captured and taken to the Pentagon or some other kind of uh, equipment. And the fact that you've got a picture of it, you know, you, you're showing it to people and, you know, one old guy is like, oh, uh, I remember building something that looked like that for a contractor out on the edge of the city there. What were their names? There was the Umbra group, I believe. And then, of course, he's killed in a car accident the day after he talks to you and you're like, uh-oh. Now that's not good. And then you start seeing a bunch of black Lincolns hanging around wherever you're going. And you realize that you probably shouldn't be crossing the street in front of those black Lincolns anytime soon. And, and so you've stumbled on something else. And maybe you'll never know what the installation was or you'll figure it out at the end when you see the, the government setting another one up for their bigger final thing. And it might be, you know, oh, it was all a misunderstanding. And we hope that the government didn't kill that nice old professor, that it was killed by the agents of the aliens. Or it's like, nope, this is a bad wing of the government. This is the part of the government that does wrong and evil, not like the vast majority of the government, Robin, that does nothing but good things. And, and, you know, you have to, you know, figure it out that way. And ideally, your characters have got, you know, the uh, either the resources uh, or the knowledge themselves to either reverse engineer or figure out some other way to use that reflector, unless you've got a, you know, really immediate clue train that, that pops them right into the bigger investigation. A third option is that the ominous installation is a trap to attract uh, you, the investigators, by some savvy, sinister organization who knows <laughs> that you'll be drawn to it. And Why, uh, this is an investigator trap, son. Exactly. Uh, what do you mean? Or, you know, an order veritatis trap in the case of the esoterrorists. Uh, mm -hmm. It could be any manner of organizations trying to capture Delta Green uh, agents. Um, including, I guess, just the straight-up uh, authorized part of the government, right? Right. And so that can sort of lead you into a, a change-of-pace adventure, a switch-up where you're just, you know, dealing with your mundane uh, earthly enemies. My favorite one that I want to close on uh, is, one year ago, my neighbor placed this stick in his garden. 
never changed since then. For information, we are not on good terms. <laughs> and so, Did a dog write that entry? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, I think the dog would, I, I, it, I guess, is the dog like offended that he hasn't been given the stick? Yeah, the, the, he's got the stick, but it's over there. He's not thrown it or anything. Right. Well, yeah. I guess that would be a scenario for the one of several games where you play uh, pets. Mm-hmm. And so this could be, you know, the next day the neighbor could be found dead and uh, the person who wrote the post is being led away in handcuffs and mm-hmm. you're thinking, I don't know, I think there's probably more to it than the stick or, or uh, what have you. So these sort of weird curveball ones that, you know, suggest the oddities of character on the part of the people posting them, I think are particularly great because those couple of lines just paint the character of a person who posted that mm-hmm. uh, really vividly. Yeah. It, it, the, the notion that, you know, we all think of the terrible old man from Lovecraft, the guy who's got his weird rocks and his bottles with uh, pirate ghosts. And then when you think that guy's messed up, but you know, neighbor dynamics being what they are, the neighbors of the terrible old man are probably also kind of terrible, right? That they're, you know, even if they began normal and nice, well, and they all live on terrible street. That's one wanted to up. come visit him. Just the fact that they're next to him and they see him do all his weird eldritch stuff and they become consumed by curiosity or jealousy or whatever. You know, they're, they're like, how does he have pirate gold? Now I'm mad. Or like, why are there rocks in his yard? He's bringing down the whole neighborhood. This is awful. And you can, you, you can play it either for sort of uh suburban comedy or you could play it as, you know, a genuine, oh, this is a locus of degradation because it's where the mythos exists. And human behavior just begins to sort of go into this lowest kind of rut in almost a Stephen King kind of a way right. where whatever the supernatural thing is that comes to your tiny main town, it just suddenly makes everyone act the worst they've ever wanted to act. And that's just what the supernatural does to you. And you can put a spin on it where the, you know, the crackpot who's paranoid about the neighbor sticks is he's right. But everyone disregards him, of course, because mm-hmm. crackpot. And right. it's the, you know, the normie, uh, yuppie Instagram influencer couple next door who are the ones who have the basement full of the uh, sinister vats. So we've got the, the sticks from uh, Blair Witch all yes. hanging on their walls. And uh, once we reach the sinister vats in the basement, it's time to try and uh, quickly escape them, uh, hopefully to a safer other hut. I'm sure there won't be any horror in this upcoming hut. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula Dossier Director's Handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions, and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF, entirely free. 
with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. The clanking of chains, the ooing of ghosts tell me that I was quite wrong. There's exactly horror in this hut, because it is the Horror Hut. And this time around, at the behest of beloved Patreon backer, Louis Sylvester, uh, we're going to do an unusual thing here in the Horror Hut, Ken, and that is to profile a real person. And that's because the question is, throughout Dracula, Van Helsing refers to his friend Arminius of Budapest University as a historian who really understands Dracula. What should we know about Arminius Vanbury, Vampire Hunter? Astute students of the Dracula Dossier Director's Handbook will spot some references uh, to him, but Ken, I bet there's even more about him than you could fit in that book. I'll bet there is, as with so many things. Yeah, Arminius Vanbury, or Armin Vamber, as he is sometimes called, was born Hermann Vomberger. He was from a Jewish family, a poor Jewish family, in St. Georgi, in uh, what was then Hungary and is now Slovakia on the outskirts of what was then Pressburg and is now Bratislava, born in 1831 or 32. Basically, his family was so poor that once the kids got to be 12, they were kind of thrown out into the world and said, make your own money. Mom and dad have got their own problems. We're not sure why he walked with a crutch. It might have been polio. It might have been a birth defect. It might have been being starved and beaten. Who can say? But either way, he was a smart, personable kid. So he made uh, some friends amongst the bourgeoisie of the town. They saw that he was too smart to be wandering around being apprenticed to a dressmaker. So he winds up studying in the high school at St. Georgi. He studies languages, shows a natural gift for them, bounces around Pressburg, Vienna, Budapest, studying languages and, and learning as many of them as he can, because that is one of the things that you can be hired to teach rich people is uh, other languages. And of course, if you're in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, there's an immediate demand for the rest of the languages of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, not to mention, you know, Latin, uh, which is another thing that uh, people want to learn. So he moves basically up through society, getting better and better clients as he gets better and better at languages, teaches himself Turkish and catches the eye of the progressive, which means didn't want to have all the Jews thrown out of Hungary, Baron Yotvosh, who basically sponsored him on a trip to Constantinople, where in 1857, he becomes a language tutor to rich Turkish families, eventually to the future Grand Vizier Fuad Pasha, at whose establishment he teaches a young girl named Fatima French, and she turns out to be the sister of the future Sultan Abdul Hamid II. By now, he's getting very good at Turkish. He's learning other Turkish dialects. He learns Chagatai. He learns other Turkish languages. He writes the first dictionaries of Chagatai, Chagatai German and Turkish German dictionaries. And that gets him a membership in the Hungarian Academy of Sciences. So he goes back to the academy. They give him a grant, basically, to go into Central Asia and report on the languages of Central Asia. Oh, languages, languages, Ken. But why doesn't this guy do something fun like uh, travel in disguise? Well, 
it's odd because Central Asia is full of very suspicious cons who don't like weird Europeans showing up because so often they're followed by European armies. So he does disguise himself as Resht Effendi, which is the sort of alias he had been using in Turkey when he thought maybe being a Hungarian Jew is not what I want to be today. And under that disguise, pretends to be returning from the Hajj and going on a pilgrimage to the sacred spots of Islam in Central Asia. So Kiva, Bukhara, Samarkand, Herat, etc. Right. So he's got lots of points in linguistics, but also disguise. Also disguise. And in fact, in eidetic memory, because of course, one thing you can't do if you're a simple but humble pilgrim is write down what words everyone uses. That immediately people start looking at you askance. Uh, he was in the great book stall of Bokhara before the Russians invaded. Probably, you know, the the last uh, European to to see those books. Broke his heart, according to his memoirs, that he could only buy a very few books. So, uh, he said that it would solve so many questions about languages and history. But sadly, I could only buy a few because my cover could not be traveling, you know, book guy with a lot of money because yeah. then you're you're mug for one and, thing and then we would have had to explain it to sheila yeah he would have had to explain it to to sheila which is terrible because i mean she's not even married to him she'd immediately be suspicious on his way back uh, and, and he kept being stopped by the various authorities that say something about you seems i don't know not at all muslim and then they would quiz him about the pilgrimage to mecca but he had read enough reports of pilgrimages to mecca that he could answer back and say, oh, no, you're wrong. It's actually the third caravanserai along. And then they would say, we were stupid to ever suspected you, Resht Effendi. Let us give you valuable gifts. And they would. And so by the time he gets back to Tehran, he's loaded with books, valuable gifts, and tiny scraps of notes that he's taken in lead pencil. He fetches up with the British consul general in Tehran and unburdens himself of the opinions, hey, the Russians are nosing around You'd better get the British there if you want to keep it from all being eaten by the Russian Empire. This seems to have been where either he or the British or both think he becomes an agent of the British Empire. But at any rate, the Consul General gives him letters of introduction to various nobles and uh, scholars in London. He goes back, is indeed a giant hit in London, thanks to those letters and thanks to his amazingly cool lecture series about how I traveled in disguise through remote Central Asia and also the Russians are bad, becomes pals with Dickens. He meets the Prince of Wales. He's a giant sensation. This is in 1865, 1866, uh, moves back to Hungary and is made a professor of Oriental languages at the University of Pest in 1867 after having a lot of, I don't, probably also anti-Semitic, but mostly just snobby people say, you don't even have a degree. How do you get to be a professor? And the answer is, well, I, I took a, a, a series of seminars in Bukhara, and then they'd have to back away. He said around that time, he knew 32 languages, but sadly, he only spoke about 18 fluently. His big contribution is to believe that Hungarian evolved in contact with Turkic, and so Hungarian is a Turkish language. Hungarians hate that simple trick, I'll tell you that. We are a Finnish language, and we want none of your nonsense. But non-Hungarian linguists are still, I think, on the fence. He then begins writing a series of the Russians are coming polemics. Uh, Again, he was a teenager when the Russians invaded Hungary and crushed its independence in 1848. So he never liked the Russians, not from day one, and is at this point becomes sort of a freelance consultant on the Ottomans, mostly hired by the British government. 
to, you know, write anti-Russian propaganda, which he happily does. He describes himself as a Hungarian by birth and an Englishman by feeling. There's a very touching bit in his memoir of his travel to uh, Samarkand where he says he saw some boxes that were labeled Manchester because apparently they'd been shipped all the way from Manchester. They had cotton or guns or something. And it gave him a an unusual feeling of homesickness to see this English town that he'd never visited or known anything about. So that may have been the sort of thing he puts in because he wants his book to sell more in England. Who knows? Maybe the, the Danish one says it said Copenhagen and I felt wonderfully nostalgic. Yeah. I have to check all the editions for uh, exactly. Omni pandering, Omni pandering and roughly 1889, because that's when we start having memos, the foreign office actually starts paying him as an area specialist and as a conduit to his old buddy, Abdul Hamid who keeps saying, oh, I can bring Abdul Hamid around because obviously it makes sense that Britain and Turkey team up to bonk on the Russians. And the British are like, well, we like bonking on the Russians. We're not so keen on teaming up with the Turks, especially since we just took Egypt from them and they're very shirty about it. And so there's sort of a back and forth where they admit that he knows his stuff. He has a lot of contacts. He's always in contact with Muslim travelers from India and from Central Asia. So he, for example, finds out of the Russian buildup in Afghanistan before the uh, foreign office seems to. And every so often he'll, he tries to get a grant to go to India to study the Muslim peoples of India. And the India office says, under no circumstances, send this guy to India. We want nothing to do with it. We will drown him if he comes. And so it never turns up to be a thing. Eventually, by 1897, he is either so useful or so persistent that they pay him a stipend of 120 pounds a year for his intel, uh, which is about 36,000 in today money, although money goes even farther than that inflation calculator indicates. He meets Bram Stoker in 1890 when he is invited to the Beef State Club. This is one of his lecture tours that he would go on to England to talk about the history of Hungary and also why the Russians need to be stopped. Right. And that's when he told Stoker that the thing that kills vampires is a beef steak. But right. Stoker misheard. He was chewing. And Stoker said, well, that's that's just going to be messy. I'm going to change that. Yeah. Uh, in 1890, he talks probably the question is the Eastern question, maybe a little Oh, Henry Irving, you like to dress up and play pretend. You know that I would have been executed if I missed a single cue for four years. That's funny. It's funny how I'm better than you at your own job. Then in uh, he meets Stoker again in Dublin in 1892. He's being given an honorary degree at the Tercentenary of Trinity uh, University. And Stoker says he was the best speaker there, blew everyone away. So apparently Stoker and his friend Arminius were indeed not BFFs, but they, they were friendly acquaintances at the very least. Enough to get a reference dropped into Dracula. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's certainly like the other scholars that Stoker mentions, Charclote and some of the others. He's definitely put in to give credence that someone reading Dracula in 1897 would know about Vanbury because he's a well-known commentator on matters of the Balkans. He's written histories of the Balkans. Elizabeth Miller, who is very... Uh, tired of answering questions about Arminius Vanbury has done the deep dive and determined that at no point in any of his capacious histories of the Balkans does he even mention Vlad Tepes. So that's, you know, a, a, very a little, suspicious veil out there. No mention whatsoever. It's very suspicious. Little fun ruining by Elizabeth. But on the other hand, a, a, as you say, a clear veil out and cover up. Yes. So anyway, Abdul Hamid has been persecuting more and more people who disagree with Abdul Hamid, but still his old buddy Vanbury shows up to 
try and talk him into being a friend of the British. And Abdul Hamid invites him to Constantinople in 1907 and 1908. And Vanbury says, oh, I've got a thing. He's worried that Abdul will just finish him off at this point. And also that the young Turks, who he's been playing footsie with, might overthrow Abdul Hamid while he's there. And then he might get caught in that ruckus. He doesn't want to be. The British make a treaty with Russia in 1907 that helps lead to World War One, but it does split up Central Asia between them, between the British and the Russians. And so they pension him off with a thanks for all your help pension and a implied don't tell anyone <laughs> pension. And in fact, they have to buy all of his letters from various British foreign secretaries and under ministers for an extra 500 pounds right before he dies as a little poor boar. This is the sort of thing where Vanbury writes notes and says, of course, I would never reveal these letters to anyone. You know that, right? Just letting you know, your buddy, Arminius Vanbury, P.S., love this pension. Couldn't love it more. So there's a great plot right there is that it's 1908. You're a, a junior minister, uh, you know, administrative assistant at Whitehall, and your job is to go around buying up all the Vanbury letters and you get the one where he actually mentions Dracula. Mm -hmm. That's your instigating incident right there. Yeah. I mean, because there is a uh, 77 letters have been, were known to have been sent to Vanbury. And in fact, when he sells them all back, they count them up and there are 76. So there is one missing letter in the Vanbury collection, even in real history. Yeah. That's his letter to Augustus MacGuffin. Yes. A perfect MacGuffin. And then he dies in 1913 at the age of 81, covered in academic glory, although the Society of Budapest was still mean and snobby to him. Uh, the funniest story about that, I think, is when the Prince of Wales, by then King Edward, comes to visit Budapest on a royal progress, and he goes to the fanciest club in Budapest, and he says, I'm surprised not to see my old friend Arminius Fambury here at this club. That's odd. And then the snotty Hungarian nobles have to say, oh, he's, um, he normally comes around nine and they have to send a messenger to his house and like beg him to join the club. And, uh, of course he, he, he joins and he shows right. up and makes them and not at that look point, bad. The footman rips off his mask and goes, I am Arminius Fambury. I am Arminius Fambury. <laughs> so anyway, he's basically the reason that we have. Uh, Islamic studies in Europe at all. He's one of the founders of that discipline. And also, while he was kind of a nudge to the British Foreign Office, there's a, a memo from the former Foreign Secretary to the new Foreign Secretary, and the new Foreign Secretary writes to the old one, and he says, I suppose I shall have to meet Vanbury. I'm not looking forward to it. And the other one says, oh, you're not going to enjoy it. I certainly never have. <laughs> so um, it's you, you get the sense that, you know, when he was young and hungry, he was able to make friends and influence people pretty easily. But, you know, it happens to everybody as he gets old and stodgy and set in his ways and demanding money. Yes. It's less fun to hang out with Arminius Vanbury, certainly if you're a British bureaucrat. Yes. Old, old fartitude awaits us all. And so we've gone a bit over uh, length on this segment, but we haven't <laughs> got to the part where he's a vampire hunter, because, of course, in our history, he wasn't because there are no vampires. But mm -hmm. in the fictional world of Bram Stoker, it's indicated that at least he's a historian who's aware of uh, Dracula. So I, I presume at some point when he was younger, he was using his disguise abilities to go around and perhaps hunt down vampires 
in Turkey and elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, you can certainly, you know, he's walking with a crutch as a child, and then he switches it out for a cane when he gets older, but that could be a story. It could be, oh no, I just need this cane because of my youthful polio, and the fact that his story kept changing maybe indicates he used the cane to, you know, stake vampires with, and... That was his vampire killing cane that he carried yeah, around. His little little end that you screw off to mm-hmm. reveal the, the sharp bit. Right. And he um uh he could have, you know, met them in Slovakia, which of course is right up there where Elizabeth Bathory used to hang out. That's that same stretch of land. So maybe he's out studying languages, he follows an inscription to catch Tees Castle. He, you know, meets Elizabeth Bathory herself or her mysterious immortal dwarf Janosch and has to uh, kill him and discovers, oh, vampires are real. And that's why he's wandering around Europe or Austria-Hungary as a CW uh, network style teen. He's not learning languages, although he also is doing that. He's also killing vampires and getting expert at it. And then when he goes into Central Asia, it's sure he wants to get all those facts. But the reason he really impresses all those key dives and uh, amirs and whatnot is not that he has some great story about being on the Hajj, it's because he shows up and he says, I understand you have a vampire problem, Your Excellency. Let me solve that for you. And he does, and then they, you know, give him magic books and solid gold goodies as rewards. So, you know, even Abdul Hamid could have been bringing him in, not for his geopolitical insights, which were nugatory, but to, you know, we've got more vampire problems, Vambury. You've got to train the next group of cadets and uh, teach those guys to go into tombs and fight vampires for me. And uh, maybe the reason he doesn't go back to Abdul Hamid in 1907 is he thinks Abdul didn't really meet me in the daylight. Last time I came out to Turkey. Yeah. That last group I trained, their character sheets got ripped up pretty quick. Yep. So yeah, you could have a, a, an ongoing, you know, duel between Vambury and the vampires, or it could be, it's just one of the things that happened in his uh, restless youth and Stoker, of course, interestingly, writes Dracula in 1897. And what did we? Oh, that's right. That's when he gets his stipend from the foreign office. So Project Edom could have involved him as a area specialist in the way that uh, the foreign office historically did. And he might even have, you know, drifted over to England and become under a pseudonym, Dr. Van Helsing, who is supposed to be Dutch, but curses in German because Dr. Van Helsing knows 32 languages, but only speaks about 18 fluently. Right. Well, now that we ripped the lid off that, it's time for us to uh, head on over into whatever next hut awaits on the horizon beyond this beautiful, shining, well-crafted commercial. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. 
also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Make sure the good guys triumph by supporting this podcast alongside such beloved Patreon backers as... Joshua Randall. Ian Nystrom. Yuri Horneman. Kelly Fisher. And Theron Brett. The Rising Action. The Freitag's Triangle. The Cat Up a Tree. Welcome us into that most stark and abstract, but also that most human and warm of huts. The Narrative Hut. And today in the Narrative Hut, uh, Robin, you've got a assortment of protagonists all uh, laid out by their type, uh, not by their hair color, which lets us know this is not a gothic. And we're going to uh, determine what should happen to them if I understand the Narrative Hut's impetus correctly. Right. So we're, we're headed into, uh, you know, the sort of thing that Northrop Fry would be doing today if he was immortal and cared about pop culture. And had a podcast. And had a podcast. And so this overlaps a bit with the previous distinction that I've made in Hamlet's hit points and uh, beating the story about the difference between the iconic hero and the dramatic hero or dramatic protagonist. But I realized if you look at these characters in a different way, there's more character types if you stop to think about what we want to happen to a character in a narrative. And that is the thing that engages us with all uh, narratives. We identify with or against a character, or in the case of an ensemble story, many characters. And there is something that we fear will happen, and there's something that we uh, want to happen. But sometimes that's not always so straightforward, just as uh, sometimes you will play a character in a role-playing game who you don't necessarily want to win all the time. Uh, some role-playing games, of course, in encourage that, whether you're a clone who might not survive getting the briefing at the beginning, or you know, you're some sort of uh, kind of evil lone wolf uh, figure who's uh, you're allowing you to indulge your uh, your dark side. Well, just like that, sometimes you want uh, characters to get what they're literally going for. In the case of a narrative, sometimes you hope that they will change so that they stop trying to get the thing they're trying to get. So let's break down those uh, characters. So the first type is this most straightforward. I think sort of character and this lines up with the iconic hero, although unlike the iconic hero, it doesn't have to survive for multiple incarnations, rather as a series of different stories. It doesn't have to be a serial character, but a hero in this scheme that I'm laying out is just a character who we want them to win. We yeah. want them to triumph. So Tom Cruise in cocktail, uh, we want him to become the best cocktail bartender of all time. And right. all of those. And to get the girl. Right. Strivey movies, we want him to succeed and, and win. And, and there's a lot of narratives, particularly all the ones that are about uh, wish fulfillment and almost every procedural narrative, which is mostly about overcoming external obstacles. We just want the hero to win. And that yeah. is one way that people sort of define the difference between pop culture and, and literature. Right. We want Superman to beat Luthor. We want Sherlock Holmes to solve the crime. We just want triumph. Right. The next kind, the one that lines up with the dramatic protagonist. Here I'm going to call him the transformative protagonist because there are other also dramatic non-procedural story types coming up in the list. Mm -hmm. 
is the one where we're hoping the character will transform in a positive way and, and fearful that they won't. Uh, so that we're hoping that they, instead of winning, that they achieve some sort of integration. So that the heiress who's uh, pining after the ne'er-do-well uh, realizes that he's no good for her and sadder but wiser, doesn't get what she wants, doesn't get to marry him, but gets to walk away from him. So that, And this is the predominant character that is discussed in story pitch meetings and you always hear about in, uh, you know, a character having an arc. Of course, one of my big arguments is not all characters should have arcs. It's just mm -hmm. we've taken the rules for literary characters and misapplied them to many other sorts of characters. So what the character, we might want them to achieve redemption, uh, reconciliation with the other people in their lives. We might want them to have uh, insight or understanding, but we want them to get happily married. If it's a Shakespearean comedy, that's integration. Exactly. So um, there might be a question as to whether the character's Marriage is a triumph or a reconciliation, but it's probably a reconciliation. Yeah, I mean, I think in the, in the classic, you know, Pride and Prejudice, Lizzie Bennet also changes, yes. even though we begin by thinking she's perfect, but we realize that she had, you know, too much pride or too much prejudice, whichever it was, she had it and has to understand that, yes, she can, in fact, be happy with 10,000 a year and the most handsome man in England. <laughs> uh, next, we come to the uh, tragic hero. Uh, Aristotle's ears are, are perking up when he hears that. Yep, yep, yep. And what we want from the tragic hero is they may be, almost certainly, they will be destroyed. So if you care for that character, right, you're not rooting per se for Hamlet to be destroyed, but you know that that is his fate. Mm -hmm. And you know that you're along for the ride. And you're identifying with that. Right. And very often in, you know, classical tragedy, there would be a dumb show that would prepare you for the fact that the hero was going to uh, horribly die so that you wouldn't get all mixed up and, you know, not know where this was going and where it's going is towards Or, or you would just know because the play is called Orpheus Agonistes and you're like, well, that's not going right. to be good. Yeah, or, you know, the, the tragedy of uh, whoever. Yeah. But you're looking for expiation or, as Aristotle would put it, catharsis. Right. So that the person who's destroyed must be destroyed because either that is the, uh, the way the fates deal with someone who has a tragic flaw or uh, later on because it restores order to the universe, or in a lesser version, that a, a lesson is, is learned and taught. Next, we come to the anti-hero, which uh, is often described as a new invention, unless you've read the tale of Genji, <laughs> and know yeah. that it goes right back to the beginning. Or the golden ass by Apuleius. <laughs> yeah, of uh, psychological uh, uh, realist uh, narrative in the case of the tale of Genji. And what we're looking for there is the square up, right? We want, uh, and, and the square up is a term to uh, digress for a bit. Back in the day when film censorship was uh, tight and uh, you couldn't see anything naughty in a Hollywood movie with a Hays Code, there was this underground film economy of people who would go from town to town renting out theaters and showing exploitative films with a putative moral message at the end. So there'd be, by the standards of the 30s or 40s and 50s, there'd be a film that was full of naughtiness and degradation that you couldn't get something released in Hollywood. And then at the end, they run what they called the square up reel, uh, which is the reel of film where uh, a moral figure comes in and tells you that everything you've just seen has a, a moral message to it. And then you get to all walk out knowing that you've been educated, not at all uh, titillated. So it's when we're looking at uh, someone like Walter White in Breaking Bad or Don Draper in Mad Men, we think that they're bad people doing bad things, but they're also powerful and we kind of identify with them. And they're cool. And they're cool. But in the end, 
they they still have to lose because uh, and what that does is when we get the square up reel at the end, the moment of their uh, downfall, although not all of them get a downfall, some of them get an ironic ending like Don Draper did, that we are then let off the hook for having identified with them. Yeah. And so also the uh, classical uh, Warner's gangster structure, your little Caesar, your public enemy, those gangsters, we are rooting with them all the way until the final end. And then again, we get the square where we get to feel okay about having a rooted for them because yes, inevitably they, they have to meet their end. We've, fantasized about being bad for a little while and then we can go back uh, to being good becky sharp in vanity fair possibly the greatest anti-hero of all time with very much the identification with her right up until the square up when it's like well we can't abandon victorian society then where would we be yes <laughs> and with the same cynicism i think uh, trollop is very much one of those guys going from town to town in the midwest showing the the gangster white slavery movie uh, with the square up reel. That's very much his vibe. And finally, we come to a type that is actually pretty rare as a protagonist, but still happens. And that is the monster. And we may be thrilling to their power at certain points, but we're not fully on board with them because they are shown to be sufficiently monstrous that we also uh, were maybe thrilling at the carnage that they wreak, but we also really, really want them. You're rooting for them to be destroyed at the end, not merely accepting that. And so the classical Shakespearean version of that, of course, is Macbeth. He is not a tragic hero who falls from a height. Right. He's a weasel. Or Richard III. Yeah. American Psycho, the film version of that, is very clearly in that vein. And uh, periodically, you will see other versions of uh, of the monster character. And so that is one where you are your identification is always uh, at a remove. You are following who a character who would be the antagonist in a regular film. This, you're living in an upside-down world, but you still really want them to be eliminated. And then you see that again in an, a film like Halloween, where in theory, the hero is, you know, Laurie Strode, but you've spent the whole movie basically looking through the eyes of Mike Myers. He's the real protagonist. He drives all the action. He does everything. And of course, you're there, just like the guys in, you know, um, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan in 1940. You're there to get your rocks off watching a bunch of sexy murder, but he's never an anti-hero because he's not even a person. And so what you see at the end, which the, the, the final moment is the destruction, the comeuppance of uh, Michael Myers. And that's right. the quote unquote happy ending of Halloween. Right. And the difference between the monster and the anti-hero is the anti-hero is still like, Oh, I'm really going to miss that guy. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, as in the case of Mad Men, where there's, you know, there's no real comeuppance. He, he just has a little moment at the end. You go, oh, that rascal. He's mm -hmm. going to keep on going. But he, but he has to live in the 60s, not the 50s. That's really his punishment. <laughs> and again, Tony Soprano, he's an antihero. He does horrible things all the way through, but you're still sufficiently with him that the uh, filmmaker couldn't bear to actually shoot the scene where he gets shot. So on that note... I think uh, now that we've identified uh, a whole bunch of different types of characters, it's time for us to follow uh, a particular character, perhaps back into history. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors 
all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release. The clacking of chronotons and the whirring of time gears tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and yes, even mutilate it. This time around, beloved Patreon backer Tenant Reed poses a follow-up question to our episode 482 Gaming Hut segment about gaming the uh, Soviet space program. He notes that the Excellent alt-history space show for all mankind diverges from history when the Soviets beat America to the moon in June 1969. What would Ken need to change to bring this about? Surely it can't be as simple as keeping Sergei Korolev alive. Now, I haven't seen the show, so I don't know how they justify it, but Ken, we want to know how you justify it. They do, in fact, justify it by keeping Korolev alive. It is, as one of my friends said, it is a great show and mediocre alternate history in the first season and then becomes better alternate history, but worse show in the second season. I don't know that that's true, but I, I like the vibe anyway. Yeah. Their choice is just Korolev lives. We move on. But again, I don't think that there's a segment. Maybe I'm wrong. And very briefly for people who aren't immediately going to listen to the previous segment, tell us who Sergey Korolev is. Sergey Korolev is the person that the Russians called the great designer. He was the guy who was sort of the Werner von Braun of their rocket program, except not a Nazi. He was a commie, whole different vibe. Well, not that different. And different he, insignia. Yeah, he had sort of a an overarching view of what the Soviet rocket system should be. And eventually, by endless bureaucratic infighting, almost managed to get it where he wanted it to be and then dies on the operating table for a minor cancer in 1966. And that's, you know, the the end of Sergei Korolev, the great designer, who no even knew existed until suddenly he's getting a state funeral. And everyone says, oh, the great designer is dead. And he, he was a remarkable figure, very, very smart in terms of building rockets and very, very frustrated with a bunch of his rivals, many of whom were also smart and in some cases maybe even better than him at building rockets. Among them, Valentin Glushko, who was a really good rocket designer and who Korolev hated because he thought Glushko informed on him to the KGB after Glushko's own arrest in 1938. And that's why Korolev got arrested. And Korolev somehow took that personal. <laughs> it wasn't a, well, everyone got, was getting arrested in 1938. Korolev, why are you so special? He still felt it was bad. And so he and Glushko got off on the wrong foot. And then Glushko constantly interfered with his designs. And so Korolev would say, build me a kerosene liquid oxygen rocket, a giant one that can go to the moon. And Glushko said, instead, I'm going to build you a smaller rocket full of dangerous chemicals that nonetheless have a higher um, a specific impulse than liquid oxygen and kerosene. And so it'll be basically the same rocket that you asked for. And Korolev would say, no, it's not. And then they would have a fight. And then they would have to go to Khrushchev. And Khrushchev would say, well, Korolev, 
You make a lot of good points, but Glushko has hired my relatives, so Glushko wins this one. <laughs> but in exchange, I will give you three quarters of what you want. Yes. And, and, and and those who didn't hear the previous segment on the Soviet space program, the, the theme was things blowing up all the time. Yes, things repeatedly blowing up. And we're going to fix some of that as well. But anyway, in the first, because this is one of those things that to get the Soviets to the moon requires more than just a less sloppy Soviet surgeon. It requires a little more. Thing one, uh, Valentin Glushko dies in prison in 1939 so that he is no longer the other great rocket designer getting up Korolev's nose. And presumably it's not hard for a chrononaut to get someone to die in a Soviet prison in 1939. No, it really is not. His other sort of bureaucratic foe in the uh, Soviet space program was a guy named Vladimir Chelomai. Vladimir Chelomai was in charge of the Soviet missile program and therefore... Whenever someone said, what should our rockets be? He said, how about a bunch of missiles looped together? That would be a rocket. And then Korolev would sigh and say, but that's not what I want. And he said, no, if you loop these big, heavy missiles together, you could get a guy to almost the moon. And then Korolev would say, Khrushchev. And Khrushchev would say, now, 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 missiles are very nice. Don't get Chelemai mad. And that was a situation. But in 1942, Chelemai invented a pulse jet. And that's that he really did. And it shouldn't be that hard to get him moved over to building jet fighters in 1942. And I feel like that's as simple as leaving the folders for the ME 109 out that say, oh, the Germans are building jet fighters. I wonder if we have a guy who could do that and then wait for, you know, Stalin's air minister to grab Chelemai and put him in charge of build me one of those. And uh, so he, he takes jobs from Mikoyan and Gurevich, who are normally in charge of the fighters, but that's a different fight. And I don't care if they never build MiGs. So at any rate, by the time we actually get the Soviet space program underway, Korolev doesn't have to battle Chelemai for the design or Glushko to get his rockets in the first place. Khrushchev then without those bureaucratic obstacles, or with one assumes lesser bureaucratic obstacles, consolidates the N1 program under Korolev in 62. Uh, in our history, it doesn't get consolidated until after Khrushchev is overthrown, and suddenly Glushkov's, you know, junior assistant Khrushchev is not as helpful, and so that gives them a three-year head start on design and construction of the N1. Now, the other thing that you need, and this is something that Soviet rocket scientists have said basically now, is you also need computers. The Soviet computer industry was non-existent. They didn't have them. Sure, you have more computing power in your you know, microwave than they had in the Apollo program, but you still needed it. So the Soviets had a technology-stealing program that, again, goes back to the 40s. They went over and they took all the German rockets and brought them back to Russia. But they didn't really move it up in priority in the KGB until 1971, when it got its own division called VPK. But in 1963, the KGB Science and Technology Division does get elevated to a directorate status. So in theory, you could just start VPK in 1963, and that means that the Soviets are out there buying or stealing U.S. computers with the effect that there are enough to run a Soviet space program on. And then the last big change you need to make. And one of the reasons the N1 kept blowing up when they tried launching it in Baikonur in the middle of Kazakhstan is you couldn't build the rocket and ship it to Baikonur because it was too big for a railway car. So it would have to be disassembled and carried individually out and then rebuilt 
at Baikonur, and you may trust Soviet engineers to build something right once, but I think twice in a row, especially when it is a design that has been hobbled by endless bureaucratic infighting, you're playing with fire here, literally. So the theory is that they have one failure with the first test in 1964, and then Korolev says, move the site for the N1, for the heavy rocket, for the moon rocket, to Kapustin Yar, which is on the Volga, and you can bring the rocket to it on a barge. And you don't have to disassemble it, because that's how the Americans are doing it. We're not shipping pieces of the Saturn V on trains. We're putting it on a boat and sailing it down to Florida. And I feel like the Soviets can, you know, adapt boat technology. Uh, they're very good at that. So you aren't continuously disassembling and reassembling the N1, so you can have successful tests of the N1. The program begins earlier. It's more centralized, or at least less ridiculous uh, resource competition. They actually have American computers. They don't have to keep disassembling the rocket. And then, sure, you know, as a treat, also keep Korolev from dying in 1966, just in case you need to make sure that the rocket gets off, because, of course, his deputy is still a drunk, incompetent named Michelin, and you need to get him off the page. So, yeah, also save Korolev's life. I feel like that's, uh, I can't do it necessarily, but, you know, this is one of those things where the iterative nature of time works, so you just get the surgeon drunk and his assistant does it. And if he screws up, eventually you'll get to a Russian surgeon who can do a minor operation, right? Right. And by iterative, you mean you just keep doing it until you get it right. Do it until you get it right. It's just one of those things where you're there in, in Moscow and you just have to, you know, settle in with a bottle of vodka for the long haul. But that's the, that's the timed gig, Robin. It's not all, right. you know, soup and nuts with Lucretia Borgia. Right. The only thing is you can't send your liver back in time to not had all those extra shots for the times it didn't work. So we got into the gaming implications of the Soviet space program earlier, so uh, we won't repeat that. But I guess the question then, so we'll end uh, this segment on, you can do this, should you? Right. Well, no. First of all, America belongs on the moon. That's just the way the world works. It's our flag, our moon. You don't like it? Build your own rocket. Other countries. Also, none of these people are good people. Korolev is a, is a great designer, but he you know, learned early that the way you got things done was like they got things done in the gulag. And he was a, a fairly rotten human being, as were most of the high-level Soviet officials. You don't want them to be stealing computers early. You don't want them to have a four-year advantage on jet fighters. None of this is what you want. <laughs> Even if you thought, well, at the end, you'll have, you know, Ted Kennedy in the Oval Office and a integrated space program in 1976, I don't think that it's worth building up the Soviets' military-industrial capacity that much, even if they don't get more adventurous than they do in our history, which I think is unlikely, especially if they have, you know, a more advanced jet and computer combo. I feel like they might make a play for Iran in 1979, or they might try a stare-down with, and again, if it's Ted Kennedy, he's the guy who's there during the uh, Yom Kippur War when Nixon went to DEFCON 2 and dared the Soviets to make a thing of it. Maybe a more confident Soviet uh, premier, uh, a young, virile Brezhnev says, screw you, Ted Kennedy, and uh, I'm not backing down like Khrushchev did to your brother. And, well, that's all she wrote. Nuclear war in 1973, hope it was worth it to get a red flag on the moon, jerks. Right. So this this must have been an operation originally by Professor Neck, the right. evil anti-Ken. Evil anti-Ken with the and goatee. Is, and then you would have to reset it to... right actual history. I had to figure out what he did. And that that's one of Professor Neck's characteristics is the, the subtle multi-touch. 
Because I feel like Emit Incorporated, his bosses, they're much more generous with the expense accounting. Right. And other than that, also Professor Neck's podcast is terrible. Oh, it is. It's just one topic per episode. Yeah. It just rambles on and And on. And they spend the first 35 minutes talking about towels for some reason. It's awful. Exactly. Yeah. So don't listen to his podcast. But next week, there'll be another edition of this podcast to tide you over. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrin Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Uh, support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Prevent this podcast from being bitten by this weird bug I just photographed by joining such entomologically intrepid backers as Trung Boy Craig Maloney Alexander Araballo Jane McDowell and Robert Wolf Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin Celebrate avian brigandage with our latest design Stormy Petrols of Crime On Twitter he's at Kenneth Height and he's at Robin D. Laws See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff <laughs>